Hello, everyone. Welcome to Killer Serials. This is Tony Jones. This is Ryan Parker reporting live from the wilds of Mississippi. Mississippi! That's right. You're at the, dude, you're just at the other end of a river. I could just jump in the Mississippi, float on tomorrow. down. I float on down to see you. The muddy yeah, waters, hop, baby. Hop on a steamboat or a barge. <laughs> so I'm reporting live from Edina, Minnesota, and Ryan is at the other end of the mighty Mississippi. And uh, we are. That's kind of crazy. We're a couple dudes with PhDs in theology who watch TV and talk about it, looking for spiritual themes. And uh, we have, Ryan, we have a very special episode. We should have very special episode music. You never did, in, you never did do the record scratch when I did the Tony's Hot Takes. Somebody listening needs to tell me how to insert sound effects. <laughs> I think it's gone. I think they're gone in this version of Garage, Garage Band. Band, and you had to do some sort of plug in and. Who has the time? <laughs> okay. Well, so we don't have an editor. Once we start getting paid, the, li- hint, the listeners the listeners can... Um, it, it, they know what a needle scratch sounds like. Yeah, they can, they can just imagine a needle scratch. They can imagine some, like, a very special episode of Killer Serials this week. As Tony and Ryan welcome, welcome onto the show, Hank Stuver, chief TV critic for the Washington Post, baby. This might We've be got a, somebody who's actually credentialed in the stuff that you and I are just playing around with, right? This might be our biggest get yet. I mean, we've had some, we've had showrunners. Jessica was great. We've had actors, we've had pastors, and now we've got a TV critic. And he and I had a great conversation today. I hate I missed it. I'm sorry you missed it, but you're taking care of important things with your pop. And uh, Hank and I had a great chat uh, I've ne- I've never met him in person, but my wife Courtney knows him because she photographed uh, stuff for his book called Tinsel, which is kind of on kitschy Americana. And he and I just have a really great, wide ranging conversation. We talk about what it's like to be a TV critic. We talk about uh, you know TV in kind of the the evolution of TV since he started at the Post in two thousand nine. So he's seen a lot. I mean, this is yeah. really that 09. I mean, really, oh, the early 2000s with like the Sopranos and everything. Yeah. But, you know, 09 is kind of the, 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 the kind of elevation of television really starts accelerating. Yeah. Right? So, so you listeners will hear him talk about like how TV is more like Barnes and Noble and you walk into the store and you go to, you know, you go to the section that interests you. And everybody in the family, you know, the kids go to the YA novel section. The one adult goes to the cookbooks. Another adult goes to the travel books. Like, and that's how TV is watched now. And um, so it's an interesting, wide-ranging conversation. And then we do uh, eventually get to talking about The Handmaid's Tale, Episode 7, uh, which... Um, the Other Side. Yeah, The Other Side, which, you know, give us, give us a rundown. That, that was an, it's an interesting... It, it really pulls out of the story as we're having it in modern day in Gilead. It's like a flashback and then a flashback within a flashback. I think it's a great time for you to have had that conversation with Hank because it is the show. It's almost like it presses pause on Alfred slash June. And we look at Luke and his experience shortly or right at the time that she's captured. Yeah. Right. She thinks and spends, you know, we're with her for six episodes and the whole time in her mind, she thinks he was shot dead. Right. But she was captured. But we learned in this episode that he wasn't. He was severely wounded, but also rescued by a kind of ragtag group of people. You know, 
that we can refer to as the saviors. But, but they have, uh, there's a nun, there's an ex-army brat, there's a gay guy. And then there's a young woman, interestingly enough, who is, she's a mute, she's refused to speak, but it looks like she she was able to flee a, a capture attempt, right? Yeah, to become a handmaid. She was in a school, yeah. locked in a school, and they kind of imply that they went in to rescue him, and she was the only one they rescued, and that uh, the bad dudes mowed down all the rest. Like, they wouldn't... And so we see... Yeah. Yeah. And we see... And we see still, but, we see signs of another angle on the breakdown of society yeah. in a, tr- a truly chilling scene in a church where oh, people yeah. have been hung. Yeah. Um, and kind of that destruction and murder. A lynching inside of a church. It, yeah. It, it really yeah. is a quite a disturbing, iconic moment. And it really turns... It pivots Luke. Because yeah. he's, a, he's about to say... He, he's got this kind of... Going back to that second episode when he kind of talks down to Moira, like, you know, like, hey, I'll, I'll take care of my ladies, you know? Yeah. And he's, and he's got this idealistic, he's got this idealistic pursuit at the beginning of this episode oh, the, that he thinks he for, can save her. For 45 minutes, he's been shot in the abdomen and he's like, I'm going to tear out my IV and go save my wife and kid. And they're all like, you're crazy, bro. You, they'll just kill you. You're not, you're nobody's savior, you know? And in the final, the final few minutes of the show, we we don't really know where we are in time, right. but we do a jump that says three years later, and he seems to be relatively happily acclimated to Canada, little, new, little America, in little Canada. America in Canada. Not to say that he's at peace or that he's totally happy, but life in a way has gone on for him. Yeah. Now the question I have is: It three years from when? The, from when did <laughs> was it three years from when Alfred sent that note, or did it take three years for him to get that note? Just yeah. because of the inner workings of kind of the underground movement. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's in, it, it's so interesting. And there's this little, uh, you know, there's this room with the American flag and a picture of Benjamin Franklin. And I just... Uh, Abraham Lincoln, George I, Washington. I'm just like longing for all like this real backstory. real America, right? Yeah, I'm longing, yeah. longing for this backstory. So anyway, um, we should get to the interview uh, I had with Hank. I think I think our listeners will find it super interesting and compelling. And uh, The Handmaid's Tale, man, I think we, we picked a good one. It's getting a lot of buzz. It's already been re-upped for season two, as you've told us in the past. And you know, and what about three more episodes left, right, in this season? Yeah, yeah. It just so. feels like it's gone by so fast. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. Enjoy this uh, chat I had with Hank Stuver, the chief television critic and culture writer for The Washington Post. And catch us again next week on Killer Serials. Here's me and Hank. Hey, I want to welcome to our incredibly eminent podcast this this just brings us up a many notches hank stuver hank first of all i want to thank your you for working for a newspaper that's saving our democracy oh no problem the washington post (laughs) (laughs) oh my god it's incredible um truly like without that paper i don't know where we would be today hank is the author of a book that I read a couple chapters out of every Christmas. It's called Tinsel. And I just want to encourage everyone to buy it in hardcover because, first of all, if you look on Amazon right now, Hank, the paperback is $55 and the hardcover is $5.81. <laughs> oh, so. that sounds off. That sounds <laughs> off somehow. I've, they're Maybe. both, good news, they're both still in print. I'm so. guessing the paperback is out of print and now it's like being sold by, you know, like by third, oh, no. uh, third party vendors. But the hardcover with the incredible cover photo by Courtney Perry 
is only $5.81. People, buy it. It is Kitsch Americana at Christmas time. I highly recommend it. As I recommend all your writing, because I've also yeah, read uh, I've also read maybe, off Maybe um I mean please do buy it. Maybe um May and June is when the prices go wonky. <laughs> That's right. Um, Come back in October and and we'll have we'll have our Christmas up. I'm sure that I'm sure that Amazon ticks the price up as uh, as Christmas approaches on your book. I'm sure their algorithms do that. So you're a pop culture writer, TV critic, style writer. Is that am I getting all the uh, well, all the titles right for what you do at yeah, the Post? Yeah, I mean, basically since 2009, I have been the chief TV critic. So since 2009, I've basically been on my butt watching increasingly more television every year uh, until I die. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I'm sure you get the a lot like, oh my gosh, you have the greatest job in the world. You get to like watch TV huh? and then write about it. And I imagine it's much more of a grind than people expect it is. Well, sure. Um, I think the restaurant critic has it harder. Um, and I do think people think his job is even better. But, um, yeah, I do watch television for a living. Um, when they bring tour groups through the Washington Post, I always notice they point to my office and say, he's in there and he gets to watch, he gets paid to watch TV. <laughs> now, um, on, that, on that note, it's a good gig. Um, yeah. In the last two or three years, after we crossed that threshold of 400 scripted shows being made in the American market, um, it it just became sort of untenable. I couldn't. I could no longer take a look at everything. Um, right. It's really. It's it's a job. I call it an air traffic control job with occasional delights and writing and yeah. So like it, when you know when we think those of us who open the paper and read a TV critic, like how are you watching the shows? I know like uh, Ryan and I watch these shows on our computer like i watched uh this episode we're going to talk about today on my ipad through a screener app that hulu sent to us right you must watch some some shows like that yeah i try to do most of my watching this is going to sound strange but i only live 10 blocks from the washington post Mm -hmm. and so a good way for me to compartmentalize and organize my life is to try to do all of my serious watching at the office okay so i have two screens set up uh, on on a PC, one screen's a little bit larger than the other, and that larger screen is where I watch TV. Um, and I will slide my office door shut and sit, you know, and I watch TV the way I was a reporter, um, upright, okay, <laughs> paying attention, yeah. not reclining. Or tra- you know, multitasking? Are you like t- texting or checking emails while you watch? I or- really try to shut it all down. Oh, um, wow. okay. I may I may hit pause in the middle of an episode and just do a quick check. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the news these days. If you stop, <laughs> if you stop to watch four episodes of Handmaid's Tale, you'll miss. <laughs> Suddenly we're living in Gilead. You didn't right. even know it. It's, it's yeah. like it, it's like <laughs> right. step outside and and uh, yeah. Everyone did you will see? Be did up. you see that uh, Saturday Night Live sketch a couple weeks ago? Uh, that was like the the spoof on Handmaid's Tale. The dudes walking up. Yeah, to like the, the dude bros who are kind like, of like, "Hey, where you been? What's been? You <laughs> yeah, missed like, a party let's get together tonight." <laughs> <laughs> like that. So that's what happens to you if you lock yourself in your office and you come out. And right. they're like, where did everybody go? The Washington Post has been shut down by the Trump administration. Or right. 
So um, I actually kind of stagger out of my office. Like, um, I, I, lately I've been sent like all the episodes of, of everything I've been reviewing. Yeah. So that can be a, a long sit. I just reviewed, um, this new Netflix documentary about the murdered nun, uh, called the keepers, mm-hmm. uh, which is really pretty absorbing. And that was seven plus hours. Yeah, and I take pretty pretty serious notes as I go. Um, so it really can feel like I just got out of a seven-hour interview. Now, you uh, must go into a commitment like watching that long of a show and taking that many notes, knowing you are going to write about right for the print edition of the paper. Right. Um, and, and that's, yeah, I, everything I get, everything that comes across the transom, I take a little look at. I take a look at long enough, maybe five or ten minutes, to know which stack to put it in. Mm-hmm. And once something makes it to the, I am going to review this fully at 750 or 1,000 words, then it goes into a priority stack, um, and I build out time to watch it. I, I measure how much time I'm going to need. So really, again, part wow. of this job is just organization. You're like a, just like a professional yeah, it's <laughs> crazy. And then I come home and I watch more TV in a much in a more prone, slothful yeah. <laughs> state, um, which Just, can actually be be work. Um, yeah. One thing I try to I try to save my partner from a lot of bad television. Um, okay. He's you know he doesn't. It takes it takes a lot. He's a far harsher critic than I am, and it takes a lot to get him just to enjoy or get cut, catch on to a show. I'm I'm very picky about what he gets to watch. Like, oh. and and sometimes I'll introduce him to something that I've already seen, but I don't mind watching again. And sometimes I'll save something, thinking I think he might really like this, and I've got to watch it anyway. So sometimes it creeps home, but I really do try to keep all the watching at work. I try to treat it like work. But then does 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 he um, lose out on watching some of the best shows because you're like, now I already watched this at work and I'm reviewing it. Or we we didn't have the, uh, the the fire stick or you know any yeah. sort of thing upstairs you know that <laughs> that was a big deal in our house for a long time. Right. Um, or the DVD player was downstairs, but you know I don't really get many DVDs anymore. I get what we yeah. got with Handmaid's Tale. So he's missed things like Orange is the New Black, which oh, I think he yeah. really have enjoyed because he really liked Weeds. Um, yeah. But I just don't have have it in me to start over. No, I, I, I've seen since. <laughs> no, I hear you too. I'll leave town and be like Courtney. You really got to watch all of season two of The Path before I get home because I'm consulting on season three or something. And then she's like, "Yeah, I watched two episodes, and you know, whatever." So, um, look, I want to ask you before we get into The Handmaid's Tale. I just wanted to throw this at you because uh, to have somebody of your you know stature in the industry of, of TV criticism on here. This is my family, and this is this is like think of the. I, I think of the dramatic change in television since you started at the Post being the chief TV critic in 09. Okay, so my parents live two blocks away, and they watch, like, they watch Blue Bloods. They, right, sit, down, they sit down and mm-hmm. watch procedural dramas. Even though they have a DVR, they mm-hmm. sit down and watch it when it's airing live. Right. And it's just, I think it's just the, one of the worst shows Ever, I mean, I, they they like watch it when I'm in the house and I have to leave the house. But they watch whatever that other one with James Spader. I mean, they just that's what they watch. Okay, mm-hmm. then Courtney and I are over here like streaming. I like Dick, and we have to. We can only watch it when the kids aren't in the house because it's basically right. Like, episode two was like five minutes of porn to start right. this episode. It was 
it, it's yeah. so sexual. It's crazy. And then um, our three teenagers are like each in their bedrooms streaming. They'll watch like an entire season of The Office on their computer in a night or something like that. So yeah. just like, did you have any sense of how TV viewing would well and let me just say this even to throw in the mix what you and I are going to talk about is an incredibly smart show based on an incredibly smart novel and we're talking about an episode in which the whole episode is a flashback and there are flashbacks within the flashback like yeah. my, if my parents tried to watch this I, my mom would be like Tony what's happening mm-hmm. it, it's just it's amazing. Like, what's what's your take on kind of where we are as TV viewers in America and these three generations, even in my family, and how we watch, how we interact with TV content? Well, um, a kind of a parallel is, uh, you know, when people say I grew up in a family of readers, I grew up in a family that read books. Um, I grew up in a family that read books, but my family reads um, really mainstream, really pulpy hmm. um, beach reads, like mysteries, like, oh, Sue Grafton's got a new book out. Oh, good. When you're finished, let me borrow it. Well, hmm. to me, that's that's Blue Bloods. Okay. Um, and I'm like, wow, Joan Didion just published all the notes she took on a trip to the South in 1970. I can't wait to read that. <laughs> okay. My family looked back at me very blankly. Right. I think we have so much television to choose from now that it really has become like walking into Barnes & Noble. Everybody just naturally heads in a different direction. And those teenagers head right to that YA department where, you know, number 14 in a series of 23 books about the same vampire is out, you know, yeah. and they'll just park it on the floor and read the whole thing in the store. And you're like, hey, why don't you buy that and bring it home and like really enjoy having a book? And then, you know, they're like, no, I'm going to sit here and read all the manga. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, you know, some people have no business in a Barnes and Noble anymore. I mean, that's, and that's right. sort of like, um, to me, that's all the people who, they're watching something on their screen, but most of it's YouTube, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Like, I, I feel like it's become like that. Or also like music. Um, one thing I envy about the music critic, um, the pop music critic that I work with, um, is that he's never really pinned in an elevator with somebody asking him about music. People are really so personal about music now that he doesn't have to go through his life like I do. Mm. If I go to a cocktail party and I introduce myself as the TV critic, that's it. It's, it's over for the rest of the night. I'm going to be talking about shows I do watch. shows shows I don't watch. People are going to be unloading on me about the last season of scandal, you know, just, it's just going to go that way. But with him, People are sort of afraid to talk about music because the truth is they're still just listening to the same Bruce Springsteen albums they've liked for 30 years. Right. And and they don't have much of a conversation to have with him about the latest weekend album, you know? Yeah, yeah. So. Well, it's, you know, it's funny because, like, I, I've probably been... I think my favorite show of the last year last year was Man in the High Castle. It's like a show I think about all the time and I can't wait. <laughs> it's just I absolutely loved it. And I I've talked to other people who hated it, so I realize it's super subjective. But if there was one episode that uh, truly affected me, it was the last episode of Transparent when Shelley is sings on the cruise ship. Like yeah. I I wept. I yeah. wept on a plane while I watched that on my iPad, and then I came home and I'm like, Courtney, we have like hurry up and finish this season of Transparent because I want to watch the last episode with you again. We watched it again. I'm weeping again, but like 
It was funny well, because I was thinking about talking about the, like the guys I pheasant hunt with in South Dakota. I can't even tell like the the world the the world frame of transparent of like the secular Los Angeles Jews trying to figure out like their totally weird messed up family and gender fluidity and everything else. It's like I can't even mention that I watch this show to these guys, much less that this show like affected me spiritually when I watched this, like Shelly finally claims her voice. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, it's what you're saying. I'm in a totally different part of the Barnes and Noble than these guys are. Right. Know? Well, or, or you're in the Barnes and Noble at all. Yeah. Um, we're, we're, we are becoming unmoored from one another. Um, it's been a long process. It's a cultural Renaissance in which we, we, we come disconnected from each other culturally um in ways that we didn't expect not only like ethnically culturally but just pop culturally like now you know uh it's not just about i'm a little bit country and i'm a little bit rock and roll it's like uh, you know i'm i'm a little bit uh banana and i'm a little bit screwdriver you know like it's just (laughs) yeah it's yeah and so it's amazing you think like here i am watching these Amazon pilots and voting like, I want more Oasis, you know, thinking like we're voting on which show is going to get, which pilot yeah, is going to get. it's an interesting process. And I wonder if they really take it into account or if they're just kind of dicking around with us. Um, I too. They must be wa- listening to Buzz at least, I would think, whether or not. Yeah, but then that doesn't explain things like canceling Good Girls Revolt, which had so, you know, yeah, if it was, was really. a ton of about Buzz about that. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, well, okay, well, let's dive into this show, uh, Handmaid's Tale, and it's episode seven, which is, as I already said, like a flashback with deeper flashbacks, which I did watch it and think, this has to be hard to write a sh- uh, an episode of a show that's basically all flashback, except for the very, like, last five minutes, when it says <laughs> well, three years later. Yeah, and I've, I think that these are the most crucial shows. Last week's episode and this week's episode are very crucial from just a, uh, a technical standpoint because this is where you're asking serious, serious fans of the novel to depart with you and experience things that weren't in the novel at all. And uh, it's sort of like, um, to me, it's sort of like uh, like they're building yet another office building across the street from my apartment. And, you know, the first thing they do is dig a big hole and put a parking lot in, and then it starts to come up off the ground. Like, and first it's level with you, and then it gets higher. Um, This is sort of Handmaid's Tale coming up out of the ground. Like, we're seeing the structure of a TV series instead of the adaptation of a book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, They've got to expand characters and storylines. They've got to figure out ingenious ways to prolong this story into season two, season three. Right. Uh, so you can really see it happening now, based on based on the fact that this episode's about Luke, yeah, that he's alive, uh, that he's part of a revolutionary rebellion, uh, uh, that he's ensconced in the apparatus of the United States in absentia. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot to deal with in this episode, but first for fans is: Do I like this? Do I like that Luke is alive? Do I like this particular prolonging of, of a story? Um, I've talked to a couple fans who've, who also have Hulu press access who are like, eh, eh. Really? And, yeah, well, to them, it just all of a sudden felt like, oh, it's a TV show. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, it's a TV show. Yeah, right. You know, to me, I mean, I'm like, ooh, smart. 
Like you know? how, how long ago did Orange is the New Black depart from the book Orange is the New Black, you know? Right. Like, She'd be out of prison by yeah, now. Yeah, she was in prison for like 11 months or so. I mean, yeah. it was, it was <laughs> yeah. So well, it paid off. I mean, going just briefly going back to episode six, I don't know, whatever, whatever um, TV critics awards or whatever, wherever you vote, man, I hope Elizabeth Moss in that episode six was incredible, I thought. Like, oh, yeah. I, I thought that acting performance was breathtaking. She's um, she's incredible. She'll she'll certainly uh, get noticed for this award wise. She's won the award that counts the most, which is the race uh, for Mad Men cast yeah. to find to find something better to find a good um, show. Yeah, right. so you know she left John Hamm in the dust. Yeah, that's for well. Sure. She already did though with Top of the Lake in a way, but that didn't that wasn't as big a project. Yeah. But. No, she's she's brilliant. So okay, so this episode, um, it's it's all it's like Luke backstory uh, and kind of double backstory. But I mean, first of all, I guess we have to deal with the fact that it's the first episode that's told. Through, basically, we see the story through the eyes of a man, a male character. Like we, this has been such a female dominating dominated show. At least our perspective of it. Obviously, Gilead is a male dom, patriarchal dominated society. Right. But, um, what do you make of that? Like, was that is that? Do you think that's a risky thing for the show to switch perspectives like that? And then that might be some of the some of the concern that I've already heard back about this episode. Um, that that underlying that might be, uh, hey, this is Offred June's story. She's the narrator. But um, they also picked for an episode that is told from a male point of view for the first episode. There may be more. You know, I mean, what this suggests to me overall for the series is that every character it sort of becomes you can almost hear the lost jet engine the transitionary jet engine when they're mm-hmm. going to, to someone's backstory you know that like brief like roar that and then all of a sudden you're in a flashback it's like an, a, an aural cue that you're going to flashback they can flashback everybody now now that they've done luke they could they could do anybody male or female yeah um and i hope that they do um but I think it's good to start with him because he's the one who first had to be told, hey, you're part of this problem. Just by being a man, by saying, um, you know, when Moira called him out originally, you know, after they lost their jobs and their bank accounts and Luke said, I'll take care of you. And Moira yeah. flew off the handle correctly. Yeah. She's like, see, this is exactly why this system works is because um, within every man is this idea that he can protect his woman yeah. and his and his family. And there's like a, a property notion. I mean, you know, this world that fell apart was still a world of, you know, the wedding industrial complex. And, you know, we still have young men who ask the father for permission to m- marry their daughters, you know, like right. the, we still go through all sorts of things in our daily lives that affirm a patriarchy. And um, so it's, it makes sense to me that for the first character that's not Offred and, you know, that they did off Glenn too, uh, you know, a little bit, a little um, bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There, there were things that Offred did not know that were happening to off Glenn that we saw. Right. But yeah, no, I think, I think they're very smartly um, departing from, from the June only point of view and let's just say that even like when he gets rescued and gets onto the bus a woman's calling the shots like a woman woman. saved his life yeah a woman a woman uh 
ends up getting martyred for him. Like she, she takes a bullet at the end him and yeah. literally makes him see the light about what they're up against. Um, talk about come to Jesus when she drags him into the church and there's right. all those bodies hanging from the rafters, which is pretty intense. Yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, talk about that because this, that, that was, I thought in super intense and especially, you know, relating to our, um, one of the reasons we picked this show is obviously there are all these religious overtones, but what's interesting, I mean, here we have what's basically, we see the remnants of a lynching that took place in a church. Yeah. And we've also seen a Catholic church being torn down and we've seen obviously uh, the commander and his wife, uh, Mrs. Waterford, like kind of reciting Bible verses before this monthly rape. And we've seen them trial by scripture. Yeah, but we have never really seen anybody with anything that we would recognize as like, okay, let's go back to like your, the people you talked, interviewed for Tinsel and their intimate, personal, charismatic relationship with Jesus. Right. None of these Puritans in, like, the religion of Gilead is in no way personal in the way that most American evangelicals experience their Christianity today. And it was, it's sort of a flaw of the source material. And I'm talking about one of my all-time favorite novels here. So it's not really a criticism of The Handmaid's Tale, but it is a flaw that um, Gilead is just a hodgepodge of... Um, fascism and, um, you know, Taliban-like living conditions under sort of a Christian inspiration. Um, And I think that that's probably the TV show's hardest challenge. And I'm not sure that they can rise to meet it without doing, like, entire episodes that sort of build out the theology and and the church practice. What, what what church are we living under here? And and what is it about? And what do they believe? And how do they worship? And how is it personal, as you point out? And how is it not just cruel? It would be very interesting to me to see sort of some construction around what is this religion and why is it anti-Catholic? Why is it ch- turned down? Why? And, but then you know there was nothing to me in, in, in that brief glimpse. Oh well, there were statues in that church that looked Catholic, um, or possibly yeah. There's like an angel statue that, that that's been shot. Well, you know, television is not as you. I'm sure you know, <laughs> and I'm sure you discuss all the time. Television gets kind of lazy and generic about church yes. when it wants to. When I mean. That's what's so interesting about the path is, you know, you guys helped build a religion and gave it a foundation and we could start exploring what they believe versus how they feel. Um, But in most situations, like, you know, you'll you'll have a church scene and it's it's churchy, but it looks a little Protestant inside. But then the um, efficient priest, whatever, comes out in sort of a full vestibule and cassock or whatever like there's mixed signals if you know if you know your religions and you know them separately and you know what they're all about if you've studied religion you see a lot of things that don't make sense so right so i I, I, i'm interested to hear you say that because it does and i don't and i don't know the source material because i I actually haven't read the novel which is i know like (laughs) now you can't like not admit that in polite company in polite liberal company that you've never read it but um it's interesting to hear you say that Margaret Atwood has a bit of a tin ear for actual religious practice because I get the impression probably that this show is catching on mainly among 
secular, liberal, elite kind of people. And it's interesting that they, you know, like they brought us into the path to consult with their writers as they were getting ready to write season three because they felt like, you know, we actually don't really know that much about religion. Like they 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 do have like a path, a Myrist Bible that they, you know, that they have as their source material kind of thing. But um, I ha- that's interesting. I'm I'm glad to hear you say that you've also noticed that because it's been a bit frustrating for me. Like none of the characters ever talks to God, which I'm you know I think like oh if these people were really that religious, they would talk to God even if it was in a more puritanical way that was less kind of intimate and informal. It would, right. But anyway, that's it's interesting. Well, and to say unfortunately, that. because because we're not seeing sort of the. Um, the details of their religion, um, as you say, if a, if a secular and and even hot headed viewer is watching it and only looking for cues to the present context, which I keep reminding people that they decided to make a Handmaid's Tale and filmed a Handmaid's Tale and wrote all, all of these episodes long before the election. Yeah. Um, but I think people watching it in the current context who have either let go of religion in their lives or never had it. I think it's too easy for them to to just see it as as a you know it, it's it's like it's like a big bowl of ice cream really it's like mm, yum they're all you know horrible look at all those religious bad. idiots yeah and they would and they would see no difference between the commander and you know the 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 mom in tinsel who decorates her house and you know has the Christmas stuff year round that she's shopping for and all you know like. And and yet those people, I think those like very charismatic, informal people, uh, evangelical Christians today, they would not recognize. That, that right. They don't look at Gilead and be like, "Yeah, that's kind of what I'm gunning oh, for." No, no, because <laughs> you know, I mean, most most people who are in a sort of evangelical uh, modern church situation are <laughs> uh, they read a lot, they love. Um, secular culture, the music reflects it. Um, they love to shop. They love clothes. They love, you know, I, yeah. I can't imagine that you could walk into like Frisco, Texas, which is where I wrote that book yeah. and say, okay, no more malls. Uh, no Give more up your no iPhones, more, moms. Yeah. No more, no more driving. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so plausibly, yeah. um, Gilead is, is, is a real stretch. Yeah. It's a yeah. real yeah. stretch. Okay, I want to ask you about one more thing before I let you go, and that's um, a lot's been made of it, and I think it's such it's powerful, and it it it, it actually I, f- I find it physically affecting me as a viewer, and that is this close up direction. This everything so you know um, Elizabeth Moss has said in interviews that like there have been scenes where she couldn't lift her head because she would smash it into the lens of the camera, you know? Yeah. Um, and you get, so it's this very claustrophobic feeling and it, it seems like there's a little more wide shot kind of stuff in this, in this episode we're talking about. But even, even so you, you, you experience like Luke, he's in this bus. He has no idea what the hell is happening out there. And he obviously kind of experiencing this, mute woman who's been rescued from probably we think being trained to be a handmaid what he what the viewer knows and what luke doesn't know is that his wife has gone through the same training you uh-huh. know um that that this woman tur- you know hasn't spoken about but is obviously deeply traumatized by but everything's so claustrophobic which in some ways 
um, I've said this before on the podcast, like I want to go onto Wikipedia and read all about Gilead. Like where are these other wars going on? And like, what's the territory? And, and yet I've, I've resisted doing that because Alfred doesn't like, she doesn't know, like no one knows what the hell is going on. Right. At least through whom you're seeing this show. So it seems very powerful and they, it seems to me like they're doing this successfully, but I wonder if, how long can you maintain that? Cl- the, the, okay. One more. I mean, the, one of the reasons that I loved uh, man in the high castle is you always know what's going on. Like there are maps, you know? Yeah. To an excessive degree because they had, you know, a, a West coast story, an East coast story, right. a, a Rocky mountain story. Yep. And then they went to Europe I think they went to Japan too, you know, yes, like they, yeah, but they yeah, always yeah. tell you like, yeah, yeah. Here's and, where and you are. And, and so spread out. Yeah. I mean, you could with Handmaid's Tale over time develop, say an Oklahoma storyline or a, you know, you could give a sense of a country. They've mentioned that the United States Capitol is now an anchorage mm-hmm. sort of in absentia. I mean, you could get really sort of, um, a little more wonky and a little more mappy and, um, you know, do it like a game board and sort of show, uh, how this is all working out logistically. I I wouldn't mind that. I think, I think men would respond to that more than women, (laughs) you know, like, and I think that's one reason why women respond. So to women were the champions of this book. I mean, in 1989, this book had already been out for four years and a woman in my, I was taking a women's studies class that, oh, you have to read The Handmaid's Tales. You know, like, that's how long ago women have been urging people to read this book. It's not, it's not, and it's not surprising to me that a lot of men haven't read it. Because I think a male perspective to this show is, wait a minute, wait a minute, how does this all work? Yeah, you know? totally. <laughs> <laughs> what's, the the, you, what's the theology you, behind it? Who's where the, the commander of what? Where are the you know? borders? Yeah, he's the commander of what, exactly. That's what I want to know. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, and like, who are these Mexicans who are in the like? Are because they, they never really is it an ambassador? You find out, oh, it's a trade. De- you find out this right. week it was a member of a trade delegation. It's a very, it's a very guy response to want to turn this into like a risk, you know, board. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. all the pieces in place, and yeah, um, and maybe they will. I think they should do a little more of that, and I think they should do a lot more of the. Um, and maybe they can do this through flashbacks with Fred and Serena Joy who they are religiously and what they believed, what they believed then versus what they believe now. And, and maybe give us some, some inner perspective into the ruling order and, and what it believes. I mean, obviously, I I personally think the handmaid's tale should hire a couple, uh, theological consultants myself. I I think that would be, I think that would be great. I think they should hire many of them. And I, I think one of the first like flashbacks into this world that they should do is, is aunt Lydia. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, because Ann Dowd is so terrific, but mm-hmm. I'd love to know her backstory and how she, she is fervent, you know, she, be, oh she clearly believes what's going on is f- for the greater good. How'd she get to that place? Would, what, where would we have found her in our world religiously? What church was she going to? Right. And we see this little moment of mercy where she wants all the handmaids to be able to go into the, the big dinner and yeah. Mrs. Waterford makes her pull out all the girls who've, you know, been right. like had their hands chopped off or their eyes plucked out or whatever. So we right. see this and she, she defers to Mrs. Waterford, not she probably has no choice. Right. But 
you see this little like, no, they should all get to have this dinner. Like, give them this. Yeah. And no, hell no. And right. so you think, yeah, that's right. She is strict, but you, you see a little, she's, she's not a one-dimensional uh, mm-hmm. matriarchal character. You know, you see right. this, there's what else is going on. That would be a great backstory. There's, there's a little bit of a back to another show. You've mentioned that orange is the new black, you know, those, those, yeah. uh, each episode having these uh, backstories of the characters, I just think is brilliant, fascinating, yeah. wonderful, great. Uh, you can it really stretches those actors in that show. You can see when they have to, you know, play a very different part of themselves for the, Right. for that backstory well thank you so much hank for your time uh it's my I, pleasure I, I wish i had like a gift certificate to a steakhouse to give you like yeah. when people <laughs> go on radio shows or you know tony democracy dies in darkness and i wouldn't be able to accept it anyway <laughs> this so, is true um, oh i know my my wife with the highest our, journalistic we have to keep our ethics in line or yes. else we'll all be um in gilead <laughs> all right hank <laughs> thanks so much and i hope you'll come back on a, another time thanks thanks it was great I was asleep before. That's how we let it happen. When they slaughtered Congress, we didn't wake up. When they blamed terrorists and suspended the Constitution, we didn't wake up then either. Now I'm awake. My name is Alfred. I had another name. Ladies, I have to let you go. It's the law now. They needed to do it this way. All the bank accounts and the jobs all at the same time. You imagine the airports otherwise? Run, run, run! You girls will serve the leaders and their barren wives. You will bear children for them. There's an eye in your house. We'll send you to the colonies. You'll be cleaning up toxic waste and then you'll die. Of Gilead and of what we have achieved. We only wanted to make the world better. Better? Better never means better for everyone. I want to keep on living for her. Remember your scripture. Blessed are the meek. And blessed are those who suffer for the cause of righteousness. <laughs>